The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. I am here, I have a cup of coffee, and I'm lamenting the fact that I bought a Mac Mini last week. Why are you lamenting the fact you bought a Mac Mini last week? Because a new Mac Mini just came out. What? No. Yes, on Thursday with the iPad announcement. With all that other stuff, are you sure it was the Mini or the Mini iPad that came out? No, no, no. There's a brand new Mac Mini. I told you you should have waited. I couldn't wait because I had a studio installation this week and I needed the gear. (laughs) Can you take it back? No, because it was a custom one with all kinds of extra... Oh, I see you got the pink model with your name engraved on it. Oh, yeah. Well, not quite, but uh, (laughs) I I was told in no uncertain terms when I went to order it because I use a local guy here, uh, he said, you know, because you're making these tweaks to it, that there's no refund on this. You've been appled. Yes, I have. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. How the airline industry is improving the taste of its food through music. Billy Idol drops by the G&B studios to talk about his new album book, and we learn the origin of those extra lyrics fans add to Moni Moni. Oh, it's fascinating. Michael Jackson is the best-paid dead celebrity, but you may be surprised he's not the only blockhead to make the list. Are you sure you're smart enough to work with Tom York? You'll need an MBA if you want to figure out how to make money off BitTorrent. Plus, a GMB update on our next live show and why platinum is the rarest metal in the music industry these days. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Fortunately, they moved the uh, the iPad launches to before Christmas so that all those schmucks who got iPads at Christmas didn't feel come March 1st that they were screwed out of something new. Yeah. And by the way, anybody who's thinking about buying a new iPad, uh, do not buy the iPad Mini 3. It is, it's a waste of money. It's a total ripoff. Stick with the two. It's, it's essentially the same unit. Yeah. Except cheaper. It's about 110 bucks more expensive, and it has a thumb reader on it now. Yeah, so what? And it's the only thing that makes it any different. My daughter wants an iPad mini for Christmas, and so we looked at the differences. I have a policy where you do not buy last year's generation technology because now you're already one year behind everybody else. Of course, something else is going to come out next year, but then you would be two years behind. So buy the current generation Suck it up, pay a little extra because it's always going to be worth it. And then Apple comes out and refreshes the iPad mini. And the only thing different on it is a fingerprint reader. Yes, that's right. So as someone who flies an awful lot, uh, you have something to talk about when it comes to the world of music and airlines? For many years, people may know this. I supplied in-flight audio entertainment in-flight audio music programming to Air Canada. I did that, I think, for nine years. You on your harmonica? No, no, I uh, put together playlists. There was usually two, <laughs> no, two two-hour playlists, and I would host a show on channels, you know, seven or eight or whatever it was. And that went on for a very long time until the, the current generation of in-flight entertainment systems came into Air Canada, and uh, they signed a deal with XM to supply all the music. And, uh, well, I had, I had nothing I could offer against XM, so, so they, they, they pushed me out. 
But anyway, so I, I have this, we call it in the business, IFE, in-flight entertainment. And it's, it's, it's very big business um, because, you know, basically what you're trying to do is make everybody in the plane forget about how uncivil civil aviation is. It's, it's babysitting. It's, it's the equivalent of giving your kid an iPad in the backseat of the car so they'll shut up. Is this why British Airways is now pairing music and food? I just want to tell you both good luck. We're all counting on you. In-flight entertainment, again, needs to make you occupied. And British Airways does a lot of long-haul flights. So you've got people flying, you know, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 hours in some cases. So you have to keep them occupied. And what they've done, and this is rather interesting. So follow me on this, okay? When you've flown... Have you noticed that food doesn't taste right? Well, I can imagine at 30,000 feet in that stale air that that would affect your taste buds because it would affect your sinuses. It not only affects your taste buds, it uh, affects uh, for something like, uh, like boiling point of water. So, for example, coffee doesn't taste right. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Cream? No, thank you. I take it black like my man. You're right. It's dry air. That affects your nose, which affects your sense of taste. Uh, and so and the altitude and the dry air also affects your taste buds. Now, what's also very interesting, and very few people know this, the drone of the engines actually affects the way you taste things in the air. And I've actually done this. There have been some studies on it. So I thought, okay, I'll take my Bose noise-canceling headphones and I'll put them on when I'm eating. And it was amazing how much more flavorful the food was once I filtered out the drone of the engines. Oh, this sounds psychosomatic. It, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It worked. <laughs> it, it works. I mean, for example, this is why there's so much salt in, uh, in airline food, because you've you got to bring out this extra taste. You have to modify it you know, artificially. Uh, and this is why if you, if you don't put on something like noise-canceling headphones, the, uh, the drone will just, it just tastes like crap. So uh, try it next time. I just want to tell you both good luck. We're all counting on you. So British Airways has come up with this idea of, of pairing music with the food that they're serving you. And it does two things. First of all, it entertains you. And secondly, if you're listening to the music, it filters out some of the drone of the engines. Therefore, theoretically, the food that you're eating will taste better. And you will think that it's the music that's making your culinary enjoyment better when it's actually something a little bit different. I don't understand this. I, I could understand why you pl you hold your nose if you want to eat something you don't want to taste. But how are your ears connected to your taste buds? Listen, the brain is a weird thing. Last week, I did a speaking engagement for Ontario Shores, which is a mental health center in Oshawa. And um, the, my presentation was music in the brain. And basically, what happens is <laughs> the story is that... Uh, the music, music and your brain work together in mysterious ways. This is just another example of it. Ooh, speaking of mysterious ways. Ah, oh, I didn't even plan that segue. That loves me a good segue. Okay. For years, we thought that Bono was just a d by wearing these crazy sunglasses. Now we find out the old man's losing his eyes. Uh, back on the Zoo TV tour, uh, a roadie went to some flea market somewhere and he saw these weird sunglasses that when you put them on makes them your eyes look all bug-like mm -hmm. so he took them back to bono and he said try these on he was really kind of i think they were 17 dollars somehow i remember them being 17 dollars 
takes him back to Bono and he puts him on. He goes, this is kind of cool. And as the Zoo TV tour wore on, Bono adopted those sunglasses and a character known as the Fly. And, you know, there was McFisto, there was the Fly, there was a couple of other people that he would portray on stage during the Zoo TV tour. And my recollection is that Bono began wearing sunglasses constantly at that point. So 91, 92, 93, somewhere around there, you never saw Bono or almost never saw Bono without sunglasses. And a lot of people thought that, you know, he's just being a pretentious rock star prat. Well, it turns out that uh, the guy's got glaucoma and, and he's uh, been wearing the sunglasses as a, as a treatment measure. Now, I know you have sunglasses or, or eyeglasses. Did you get the laser eye surgery or are you still wearing glasses and, and contacts? No, I, I, I can go back and forth between the two. I was one of the 5% of people for whom the cornea rethickens. So uh, after about a year, my, my vision deteriorated a little bit and I could have it fixed and touched up. So I would have the eyesight of an eagle, but then I would have to wear reading glasses. The glasses he wears or wore during the Zoo TV tour reminds me of when I got the laser eye surgery and I walked around with the blue blockers all the time. People thought, oh, look, there's Bono. Yeah, uh, I know I had the same sort of situation, but, you know, my mother has glaucoma and glaucoma is a, is a buildup of pressure inside the eyeball. And if it's not treated properly, it can lead to blindness. So Bono, of course, has enough money to deal with any sort of health problem. He's having it treated. It's under control, but he has been suffering from glaucoma for the last 20 years. He just has to make sure he gets a little eyeball pressure test and maybe you've gone to the ophthalmologist and had it done and they, they do a little... Um, um, shoot a jet of, of air into your eye to see how much it bounces back. Yeah, so that's that's the glaucoma test. And uh, he's fine. Uh, but at least we have a reason for him wearing those stupid sunglasses all the time. I'm okay with it. Now that I understand it, I'm okay with it. I'm evangelical about the laser eye surgery. I had it done about six or seven years ago or so. It's the best five grand I ever spent. I get into the cab and the cabbie's like, so you're on your way to work. And I'm like, no, actually I'm getting my eyes zapped. He says, oh, I, I did it too. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. $250. I said, $250? Where did you go? He says, my hometown in Pakistan. Oh, well, good for him. I paid five grand to get my eyes zapped. And he says, oh, it hurt like a son of a bitch for three days, but I was fine after that. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're going to give me lots of drugs. I think I'd rather go to some swanky joint in Yorkville, pay through the nose for it, uh, than some back alley eye job. Did he have the LASIK? When the operative field is numb, the doctor will use an automated microsurgical instrument called a microkeratome. This tiny instrument will carefully create a thin corneal flap, which remains hinged to the eye. Underneath this flap, the inner layer of the cornea, called the stroma, is exposed. Next, your doctor will use a computer to control pulses of cool laser light. These pulses will delicately remove microscopically thin layers of cells from the stroma. Or maybe he had the, the radiokeratotomy. <laughs> For all I know, he had a guy with an X-Acto blade. Well, that's radiokeratotomy. That's, that's the one where they, that was a discredited old Soviet um, procedure that uh, had all kinds of... Um, Side effects. Yikes. Oh, 
in one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. So let's sink another drink, cause it'll give me time to think. If I have a chance, I'd as a woman to dance, and I'll be dancing on with myself. Billy Idol has to be one of my all-time favorite guys of the 80s. I've always been a fan. I was a fan of Generation X back in the 70s, and then I followed him through his solo career through about 86 or 87. After that, he kind of disappeared more or less for a while. He hasn't released an album in uh, 10 years, but he's got one called Kings and Queens of the Underground coming out uh, in October. He's also got an autobiography called wait for it, Dancing With Myself, which is really kind of interesting. I've I've read a number of uh, passages from it, and the guy has lived a colorful life. I mean, he was one of the original British punks back in 1976 and 1977. He was part of Generation X and all the stuff and excesses that they got into. Then as a solo artist, he was a, an MTV face. There was uh, oh, all kinds of stories and all kinds of tales of drugs and sex. Then there was a very bad motorcycle accident that nearly killed him. And then this long sort of uh, period of being a, a senior statesman in the, in the world of punk rock. So we had an opportunity. I, he's in L.A. And after chasing each other around a little bit, we managed to find some time. And uh, I want you to pay attention. We'll, we'll talk about the, the new album and the new book, which are both, I think, really important. But wait until we get towards the end of the interview, because we are going to get very anthropological and we're going to come very close to solving a very great musical mystery. Oh, I just got shivers. You wrote your autobiography, which is called Dancing With Myself. Perfect title, by the way. Uh, you wrote your autobiography at the same time that the album was being recorded. Did, did one inform the other? Yes, uh, they did rub off on each other, yes. Um, the album itself does have a sort of a retrospective uh, look, some of the lyrics are looking backwards, although there's just as many songs about today. But uh, yes, they did rub off on each other. I've heard that when people sit down and start actually dictating or writing or making notes about their life in, in order to create an autobiography, you end up remembering things that perhaps you've long forgotten. Did, did that happen to you? Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of cobwebs, really. So, um, But it's great grabbing hold of the memories while you've got them. I think that's the thing. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book now because I could still remember things fairly well and I was just thinking, well, I don't know how long that's going to go on for. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's lots of parts of the book really are grabbing hold of your memories while you've still got them. Well, we were kind of worried about you for a while. There was that bad motorcycle accident. Yeah, that was a bit of a wake-up call really. I mean, um, it didn't really have to happen, the mot motorcycle accident. Um, and... and there were things like that starting to happen, and I think it was just like the sign, the sort of honeymoon with drugs, really, and it was kind of over, really. And uh, But it takes a long time for the drug addict to uh, to listen, really. And But that was one of the... That was kind of the sort of beginning of the wake-up calls, you know, where you knew, oh, look, look what happens. 
it's you're getting a bit out of control, you know. So. <laughs> and you sold all your vinyl to get drugs? Well, at some point, yeah, I think all junkies do things like that, you know, and um, it's kind of a good uh, a good picture to show you sort of the desperation of it at times, you know. Another interesting thing about the autobiography is that you can look back and see how things have changed with the music industry over the course of your career. I mean, back at the beginning, you had punk rock and the Roxy and, you know, a Generation X and then moving on into your solo career with, you know, becoming a big MTV star when it was really cool to show videos on TV. And now we're completely removed from that. Uh, how have you adapted? Well, I think uh, the thing is you just go on carrying on trying to do music that you think sort of valid or, you know, that you having fun with it today so uh, that's what you kind of hold on to and um, I'm still playing with people like Steve Stevens who's you know I don't know getting better as a guitar player after all these years still getting better so it's there's still a lot of excitement really and um, I think you just hang on to that I, okay I have to ask uh, a question that's been bothering me for a very long time you're the only guy that can answer the question I have been doing extensive anthropological research on the special crowd lyrics that show up every time in Moni Moe. <laughs> and I, it has turned out that there are distinct geographic differences of what people shout during the song. Depending on where you are in North America or Europe, you get a slightly different variation of what they're saying. Where the hell did those special audience lyrics come from in Moni Moni? Well, I, I heard it was, uh, that you started off in like those frat houses, you know, back in the 80s, I suppose, um, that the frat house started it, and then it kind of graduated to the discos, and then the, the DJs would sort of like, yeah, the crowd would start shouting it, and yeah, that's it. Kind of went on from there. Then, it, then we even, well, we even sing that, you know, even sing these other words. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it's a lot of fun, really. So, uh, when did you become aware of these lyrics? What, uh, when the audience? I think it started along with uh, when we did kind of the live version of Moni Moni, which got to number one. That's kind of when it started. Around 1987, 80, yeah, 87. Right, so you know, many years after the song was recorded. It's kind of wild, actually. It was nothing to do with us, so it was <laughs> it's kind of fantastic in a way. Well, it is. Again, it's, it's this giant intercontinental meme that managed to spread without the use of the Internet, without the use of anything that we can actually trace it to. So it's 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 fascinating. You can be like I say, you're you're a fascinating anthropological study. <laughs> <laughs> I know why he stopped performing around the late 80s, early 90s. Why is that? The man got married. Yeah, I mean, he's... Uh, he's and a, he's still married. Yeah, he's a, 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 you know, one of these survivor dudes. How many rockers do you know got married in the 80s and are still married today to the same person? And how many of them are Billy Idol? You know, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> really something else. Again, read the autobiography. You'll wonder how the man is still alive, let alone married. 
When you think fashion, you think geeks and beats. Fresh from the runways of Milan and Paris, it's the GNB Fall Jacket. Great for early morning runs or standing in line at Starbucks on your phone. Show your support for the big show with the only fall jacket you'll ever need. Go to geeksandbeats.com slash swag today. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We had complained last week that because we're now on the Bell Media Radio Network, people must assume we're rolling in dough, and therefore we haven't gotten a single donation to the big show since we joined uh, the Mother Corp. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, Victor Biggio, I think he's turning into our sugar daddy, by the way. He's the man of the miracle travel mug of traveling. Yeah, he should have some sort of special designation. I, I don't know what it is, but but somebody like Victor should be singled out among the millions that listen for being extra supportive. So he's the co-producer of this week's show, which means a few things. One, he gets to put it on his resume and his LinkedIn profile, of which I've seen people do. We will vouch for you if you want to use it as an actual item on your resume. We will also send you the uh, album art suitable for printing off, framing, and hanging in your parents' basement. And of course, we talk about you on the big show. Mm -hmm. So if you would like to open your wallet wide, be a co-producer on the show, just like Hollywood, you don't actually have to do anything. 25 bucks gets uh, all the world's attention put on you. How much money do we have in the kitty? 75 bucks. <laughs> Good thing our overhead is low and that we don't pay our employees. You know why? Because we also sold another miracle travel mug of traveling. Fantastic. Darren Sanger Smith of Burlington, Ontario, uh, opened his wallet and uh, dropped the 35 bucks to pick up a miracle travel mug of traveling. And I fully expect him to start tweeting out photos of it in action. He is an architect in Burlington, Ontario, so he finds himself on all sorts of fabulous job sites. We want to see a few pictures. Here is my weekly plug for the miracle travel mug of traveling. It is the best travel mug that you're going to get. Yeah, it's 35 bucks. There's probably a little extra overhead in there but given that it's one of our uh, only items that sell it's you, you know we gotta take the money where we can get it but uh, you, you will not be ripped off this is the greatest travel mug you will ever have it will keep everything hot or everything cold for a very long time i use mine every day i i misspoke i i jacked up the price by five bucks accidentally it's only thirty dollars oh okay consider it on sale oh, <laughs> yeah you know what you can do? Save the five bucks, bring it to the door at the Estonian Center at 958 Broadview Avenue in downtown Toronto for the Toronto Downtown Record Show, Sunday, November 2nd. We're going to be there. Yeah, that is, uh, that's not that far away, is it? It's creeping up. Yeah, okay. And, and wifey's a little upset with me because we had plans to do a little Niagara on the Lake Adventure the night before. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have one of those too, uh, but they're not coming for two weeks after that, so I'm okay. Well, me not so much. So if you've got any suggestions as to what I can do to make it up to wifey, uh, fire us off a tweet, uh, Geeks and Beats, send us an email, uh, or send me a care package, because right now I have a funny feeling that the more gifts, the better off I am. Listen, buy her a record. Buy her something, you know, like a, like a Joy Division bootlegger. Buy her a record? Sure. W what would she play it on? Uh, well, listen, it doesn't matter. I mean, say, honey, it's an investment in the child's education. Here's a very rare Joy Division bootleg. 
Yes. Here's a reminder of why we're not in Niagara on the lake today. <laughs> yeah. You Brilliant. Know, ah, women don't understand them. Well, come on. It's a, it's a, don't, it, look, this is it's an important record. Geeks and Beats update. We have a new member of the G&B writing staff. How many people do we have on staff now? At this point, 12. <laughs> Oh. If, if, if you want to include Ian Service, who is our uh, resident uh, geek at Credible Goat, your dynamic infrastructure, they're our web uh, service guys. We've got an editor. We've got, uh, we've got of course, the HR guy, uh, Darren. And uh, so now we also have Patrick Charles, who uh, wrote this week on geeksandbeats.com uh, a, a question, a rhetorical question, as it were. Are you smart enough to work with Tom York? Uh, no, move on. <laughs> what's, Did you see this article? I, I'm looking at it right now. So, so what's take me through it? Uh, apparently, you need an Oxford MBA if you want to work with York um, on his uh, BitTorrent project that he just recently got off the ground. His album had a base price of six bucks. Ninety percent goes to him. The remaining ten percent goes to BitTorrent itself. And he had these MBAs sit down to figure out how to pull this off. Wow. Three and a half million downloads already. Okay, well, and that's sold downloads, or you know, what's sold downloads? Really, three and a half people, three and a half million people paid six bucks. That's according to uh, Patrick Charles, and if his facts are wrong, we just might have to fire him and take back all the money we gave him, which is nothing. Let's just assume that he's, he's correct. Uh, and hang on, I'm pulling out the calculator here. So if we have. See, if you had an MBA, you wouldn't have needed a calculator to figure out $6 times three and a half million. Okay, so uh, he gets 90%? Yes. Okay. So, um... Mm, riveting radio. That's that's like $3.1 million. That's a fair amount of walking around money. Wow. Now, what's interesting, I, I thought this was kind of funny, is that the people who uh, bought the album for 6 bucks immediately put it up on BitTorrent for... For free. <laughs> free, for yeah. free download. Well, the, the MBAs couldn't figure everything out. No, they had to know that there was a certain amount of risk involved because, I mean, if you're going to put something on BitTorrent, guess what? It's going to be on BitTorrent. So uh, that's why they there, there had to be a risk analysis there. If you would like to be a writer on The Big Show, by all means, go to uh, geeksandbeats.com, hit the contact page, fire us off an email, send us some of the details, tell us what you'd like to do, and we'd be more than happy uh, to expand our empire to include you. And listen, if there are people that are willing to write for my website, which is a journal of musical <laughs> hey, things. Hey, 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 hey. No, well, what? Listen, I'm, it's overflow work. If you're just sitting around the office and you have nothing else to do, you know, better than looking out the window, write something for me. Hey, we just got a tweet from CFRA Ottawa. We did? Yes. Great listening just tonight. Now? Yep, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, uh, Ott News is the hashtag they used. Uh, we are uh, not just on, uh, of course, uh, iTunes and Stitcher and in the inner Tron at large. Uh, we are now on a series of Bell Media radio stations, including the mighty 580 CFRA in Ottawa. Hmm. Hello, Ottawa. I, I put out, I tweeted out a photo of me holding up my grandfather's uh, Tombstone RCA 1936 radio that uh, he bought for his father and uh, alongside a picture of you and underneath it, it it read we're now on the radio yes that thing in your car <laughs> and they actually retweeted it interesting oh here i, I thought they think we were too smart ass for oh, that here's the tweet i'm looking at it right now fascinating yeah <laughs> okay back to our geeks and beats update on the uh toronto downtown Records show you've actually got a database with every record store in the world, with one significant exception. Uh, yes. Then uh, the exception is Urban Outfitters, because they're more than just a record store. 
this is about pure record stores. It's a site called Vinyl Hub. So vinylhub.com. They are compiling this uh, database, which at the last time I looked, they had just under 2,200 record stores uh, set up. Now, let's just go. Since we've been talking, does that mean there are only two thousand two hundred record stores in the world? Well, you know, one of the things about putting together this database is that it's getting easier because there are fewer and fewer stores. (laughs) So um, I'm just going to look here. Oh, see, now I just looked up Ottawa since we're talking about them, and there were only two record stores mentioned: Compact Music and Vertigo Records. Now, I, I would have to believe that in the Ottawa region there are more than two places selling selling vinyl. So maybe they just haven't. haven't got there. I'm going to look at my hometown, Winnipeg, and Winnipeg lists one. Oh, actually, no, they list, they list two. They list two stores now. Uh, Toronto lists uh, quite a few. There's about 13. And there's a couple here I haven't heard about. I mean, Zoinks, Music and Books. Where's that? It is on Blur Street West. Okay. Oh, no, I've been to that one. I would have thought, though, that the Urban Outfitters would have been included because we reported that they were the largest seller of vinyl in the world today. And then somebody tweeted us saying that, in fact, that wasn't true. Yeah, and the the answer is that it's Amazon. Well, thank God, because, you know, enough with the hipsters already. Yeah, what we were doing was talking about... uh you know, bricks and mortar stores. And what we're trying to talk about here is, is like old school, independent, high fidelity record shops. So, uh, anyway, vinylhub.com. If, uh, for example, I was in Los Angeles recently, I always go to a place called Amoeba Records on Sunset Boulevard, Amoeba and, uh, Ivor Street in, in Sunset, uh, or in, uh, in LA, 13, 14, 15, 16, They only list 17 stores in the entire Los Angeles area. I'd have to think that there's more. When you told me that you wanted to talk about Vinyl Hub, I thought this was a variation on that adult-themed conversation we had a couple of weeks back. Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. So we got all excited this past week about the prospect of dirt-cheap energy that had absolutely no negative impact on the environment. And then the nerds came out to say, nah, uh, 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 we're not getting fusion just yet. Was this a story about uh, Lockheed Martin? That's right. Lockheed Martin says they'll have a truck-sized fusion reactor within a decade. Yeah, right. Which is fascinating. Well, I know we've been working on this technology ever since we, you know, split the atom and and came up with fusion as a, a nuclear power. But this goes the other way. It doesn't have that nasty side effect of anything other than water vapor. Well, listen, successful, profitable... A sustainable nuclear fusion has been always 30 years away for as long as I can remember. Nuclear fusion it was discovered by Australian physicists, as a matter of fact, and the 
idea here is that it's the same process that powers the sun, uh, powers stars, and if you could harness it, you would get virtually limitless clean energy. So the, what it means is that it's released, the energy is released by joining light atomic nuclei with high pressure, extreme high temperature plasma, which you generate by using a magnetic field. And the attraction of fusion, of course, substantial, largely because it doesn't really have a waste byproduct. It is basically clean and this truck would be enough to power all of New York City. The problem is that you have to put so much energy into this thing before you start getting energy out that it becomes a real problem. What, it, what are we dealing with, 100 million degrees centigrade? Something like that? Something in that neighborhood, yeah. It's, it's really, so you first, and then you need a containment system. What are you going to use to hold something that is at 100 million degrees? So are you telling me that my DeLorean won't be powered by a Mr. Fusion anytime soon? Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. I mean, I wish it was. Um, but you know, like I say, uh, successful fusion has always been 30 years away. All right, so we haven't cracked nuclear fusion just yet. Things we also haven't cracked, at least in 2014, a platinum record. Yeah, I publish every week a report, a sales report and sales analysis uh, for both Canada and the United States. And over the last three years, I've been watching weekly sales go down and down and down. It's much worse in the U.S. than it is in Canada right now. I think we're about 5 or 6% below where we were this time last year. But the United States is into double digits, um, somewhere between 15 and 18% sales decline of both physical and digital media as far as music is concerned. And it has been so bad this year that there has not been a single record released in 2014 that has cracked the one million mark. There have been uh, albums that have, uh, have sold a million copies, uh, but they were all released in 2013. There was the Frozen soundtrack, there was Beyonce's surprise record, and there was Lord's Pure Heroine. There was also Justin Timberlake's comeback LP, the 2020 experience, which did you get a chance to put any time into it? Because it sounded to me like he just basically pulled it out of his ass. Uh, and it only sold, uh, what was it, three, 2.3 million copies? So that makes it double platinum. Is that how the, the term goes? It makes it, it makes it double platinum, but there has not been a record released in the 2014 calendar year that uh, has sold more than 750,000 copies. Now, we're running out of time, of course, because it's, you know, middle of October already. And uh, the only person who has a real shot at breaking that is Taylor Swift, her 1989 album. She is a, um, everybody buys Taylor Swift albums. She was the last person to sell a million copies of an album in its first week. So if she can pull it out of the hat over the next 10 weeks, uh, she will be the only person to have a, uh, a, 10, a million selling record this week, it's, it, this year. It's, it's, you know, it's not going to happen with you too, because, uh, you know, Songs of Innocence was given away for free. Oh, they and that doesn't count because it was a giveaway mm -hmm. as far as the phys physical release of the record if you check the sales figures that are coming out today you'll see that it uh, well they they expected to sell 150,000 copies in the US in its first week even with the giveaway if you look at the sales figures today you'll find that it's um, substantially lower than that 60 songs sold a million or more copies uh, this year, whereas last year it was 83 songs went platinum and uh, digital single sales are sliding as well. Yeah, 
And it's all about streaming music services. Streaming music is cannibalizing any kind of physical or digital sales. That's just the way it is. And uh, once we, once Canada adopts streaming music more, and it's going to happen probably next year, you're going to see uh, a substantial, a substantial decline in sales in Canada. Which brings us to the whole idea of we really don't know how teens listen to music. Now, I go to all these different conferences and I participate in all these different events that try to figure out millennials, you know, people who were born since 1980-ish. And uh, we're trying to figure out exactly how young people consume music. And we, we you know, if it doesn't matter if you're a big investment bank like Piper Laura, uh, Piper, if it doesn't matter... It doesn't matter if you're a big investment firm like Piper Jaffray, who looks at these things, or somebody who's working in the radio or broadcast industry and, and trying to figure it out. Everybody has a different answer. Now, it seems to be that, that MP3s are the biggest physical way that people listen to music. 42%, 18% is the next level, and that's Pandora, followed by local radio at 16%, 13% other streaming. The lowly compact disc is 6%, and if there's one thing that's lower that surprised me, it was that Sirius XM. The kids today don't give a rat's about Sirius XM. Yeah, and where in this is YouTube? Is it other streaming? I don't think so, because the vast number of kids Again, dealing with another study that I've been involved in, the vast number of kids go immediately to YouTube to learn about new music and to listen to their favorites. 64% of teens listen to music through YouTube. There you go. According to this Nielsen report I'm looking at here. Okay, that's, see, again, a different report. So we don't really know what the hell is going on. So there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I would, um, and then there's nothing here that says how much time they spend listening to music. There is, uh, it, it's, it's not quite, nobody knows what's going on. Basically, my gut is that people are listening to uh, kids, and I'm talking about people under the age of 20. Uh, YouTube is their big thing. They make rips of songs off YouTube. They turn those into MP3s and listen to them. I, I don't buy that for a second. Maybe it's because I don't have as much time on my hands as a teenager does. But ripping music off YouTube, inputting all of the ID3 tags into the MP3 file so that it works on my iPhone properly would be insanely time-consuming. Okay, here's your problem. The kids aren't doing that. They just want to have the MP3, and they'll have a title and an artist, and that's it. They're not going to put all the other tags in there. Really? I don't think so. Then how do you know where to find what you're looking for? Doesn't matter. It's very quick and disposable. You put it on repeat, you, you consume it until you're tired of it, then you move on and delete it. Michael Jackson was the best paid dead celebrity last year. Yeah, Michael Jackson's doing really well. I'm working with a company called Flink. Check it out, flink.to. And we're working with a company or trying to work with a company in Los Angeles called Jampole. And Jampole is looking after a lot of Michael Jackson's estate. Uh, I don't know exactly what part of the estate, but I mean, it's a huge, huge trove of stuff. And there's a lot of money to be made. For example, in, in last year, the Michael Jackson estate, everything involving Michael Jackson legitimately pulled in $140 million, which... Um, is, is way more than Elvis Presley, 
who has always been close to the top of the, uh, or if not on top, of the dead celebrity list. He made $55 million last year. But one of the ones I find very interesting is uh, Charles Schultz, the... Uh, um, the late creator of the Peanuts gang. Yeah, he, he's been dead for 14 years, and his estate still makes $40 million a year. I mean, you got, you know... They're they're rewriting the comics in a lot of uh, a lot of papers. Um, they you know still license Snoopy out to sell insurance and a bunch of other stuff. Yep. So you know that's that's pretty good. Elizabeth Taylor twenty five. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Charles Schultz, did you know that he did not want to call the name of his comic strip Peanuts? I remember that story or something equivalent to that story. What do you remember? It was some schmo who worked within uh, the United Press Syndicate who just came up with the name out of the blue. He wanted to call it something along the lines of Our Gang, but because you already had a TV show based upon that, they said, I don't know, you can't call it The Little Gang. Uh, There's already an Our Gang. And he had two or three different names and they'd shot every single one of them down. And he was so upset, apparently. It was one of his few regrets tied to the Peanuts gang phenomenon itself. I'm also fascinated by the evolution of the drawing of Snoopy because it's quite evident later on that somebody else seemed to be doing the work. Well, yeah, I mean, they, uh, I, I used to buy all the anthologies of, of, of the peanut stuff and the early pictures of Snoopy. I mean, he's tall and, and, and skinny and elongated and looks nothing like the, the, uh, the short round Snoopy that we have today or we had at the end. The, uh, the football gag that was a recurring theme, do you know how many times he actually successfully kicked the ball? I think the answer's once. Zero. He didn't, eh? Okay. Of 1,455 times, he never once managed to hit that ball. Bloody Lucy. Yeah, Lucy. Speaking of Jackson, though, $140 million. How much of that cash goes to Bubbles the Chimp. Bubbles is living in Florida right now. I don't know if any of it goes to him. <laughs> He's got a timeshare. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. I just want to tell you both good luck. We're all counting on you.